according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We're going to be in uh, Proverbs 1.1 again today, although we'll spend some time in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. All in order to teach Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to ask God the Father to bless our study in His truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege we have to assemble together. We thank you for the Proverbs, Father, for Psalms and Proverbs, for the wisdom literature, for the blessings of your truth that uh, apply to our daily life. Father, I thank you for the privilege we have to study to show ourselves approved. We ask for your blessing upon our time together today in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We're not here last week, so this is uh, two weeks now getting caught up dealing with uh, Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And where do you put your comma? And does it really matter? Um, so point one in the outline I'm giving you, this is uh, going to be, I think I'm going to end up doing a separate outline for each chapter, and uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, so simple, simply to outline Proverbs chapter one, Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And I suppose it's interesting, is, is this... Uh, depending on where you move your comma. It, it practically does not matter, though. Is he the son of David? Is it Solomon, the son of David, Solomon, king of Israel? Or is it Solomon, son of David, king of Israel? You see what I'm saying? The phrase king of Israel. Should we attach it to David or should we attach it to Solomon? And grammatically, you can go either way. And I don't think, of course, the reality is they were both kings of Israel, so it ultimately does not matter. I think it's best to take it, though, as son of David, king of Israel and uh, take it from there in any event. Proverbs does present the Davidic paternity of Solomon, while Matthew adds the Bathshebic maternity. And this is where we left off last uh, two weeks ago as we were dealing with both his paternity and his maternity, the role of both David and Solomon in shaping the book of Proverbs. The role, I'm sorry, David and Bathsheba in shaping the book of Proverbs. Both are vital. And the recognition that uh, in the uh, genealogies that are listed in Matthew chapter 1, you have both his paternity and his maternity that's mentioned. Four women that are mentioned there in Matthew chapter 1. In each circumstance, it's, uh, it's interesting. You have uh, a prostitute. You have, uh, that's Tamar in verse 3, who played the harlot with her own father-in-law. You've got uh, Rahab, who was a harlot in Jericho. Then you have Ruth. And uh, can't think of any, there's nothing negative about Ruth that the scripture portrays anyway. And then there is Bathsheba mentioned in verse 6, who had been the wife of Uriah. So the four women that are mentioned there in, uh, in Matthew chapter 1. David's greatest failure, point B, David's greatest failure was Bathsheba. Second Samuel chapter 11 that details that. Um, not just my opinion, I suppose you know we could debate it or discuss it and say, well, I think this other failure was greater. Well, the scriptures portray the Bathsheba ep- episode as the singularity of David's failure. In other words, when, it, when the book of Chronicles, I think it is, that gives the summary of, of David's life, how he loved the, the Lord God with all his heart and everything that he did in, in reigning, the book of Chronicles makes that one reference to Bathsheba as really the glaring failure in in. David's life. God's judgment upon David created hardship and heartache for his polygamous house. And uh, this is detailed then in 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 and 11. Let me go ahead and pick it up there. In the recognition, turning back now to 2 Samuel chapter 12, in the recognition that this failure, as great as it was, not to say that some sins are worse than other sins and, and all the rest, but Given his position as king and given his uh, responsibility towards Israel, given he's already been the recipient of the Davidic covenant, 
his uh, accountability is that much more severe. And so when he's rebuked here with the parable, and when Nathan the prophet nails him on this, and he says, you are the man, in verse 7, thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. Now he was polygamous, but God himself had assigned some of that. He had assigned care and custody of the uh, previous king in his harem. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And this is what it comes down to. This comes down to David's rebellion against the Lord in despising the word of the Lord. When you decide that your uh, selfishness, your carnality, your flesh is more important than the uh, obedience to the scriptures. And when you're in a position of responsibility, when you are uh, the king of the country, the pastor of the church, or, or what have you. So the judgment becomes that much more severe. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, here's the consequences. And notice, these are lifelong consequences. This is the ongoing uh, discipline upon his life as a consequence of this one particular episode. The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So there's judgment number one. The sword shall never depart from your house. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. There's judgment number two, evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Judgment number three. The shame and the, and the, and this is judgment that his wives are going to have to suffer. They're the ones that are going to be mistreated. They're the ones that are going to be abused in, in full public daylight. But it's the consequences of what he did. Indeed, you did it secretly, verse 12, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. God utilizes public discipline in order to teach, uh, in a very broad and public way. The whole nation can learn by watching the uh, the discipline upon upon their king, upon David. And so David said to Nathan in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. He's going to engage here in the 1 John 1, 9 procedure. Uh, thousands of years before 1 John 1, 9 ever gets written. Okay, uh, I guess David's 1,000 B.C., all right? And um, when do we write 1 John? About the 70s? About the 70s A.D., all right. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. And so here's what happens when you confess your sin. Is it an immediate get out of jail free card? Does it mean that there's no more consequences ever again? No, not what it means at all. It means you're restored to fellowship. You're cleansed from all unrighteousness. You can return back to the, as you're walking in the light and glorifying Jesus Christ. Um, In this case, his sin unto death sentence was suspended. That's how close he was to the sin and the death. The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. All right. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. All right. This child is not going to live. Think about the scorn, the uh, blaspheming, the occasion. Should that child live? Should that child uh, reach adulthood? Should that child uh, for the rest of that child's life, he would be the target. He would be the target for satanic attack. He would be the target for, um, uh, you can imagine, I mean, the, the succession in the, to the throne was rough enough as it was. Imagine the, the claim that that boy would have to the throne. And then the, uh, the dispute about who, his paternity, the dispute about, well, was David really the father? Was it really Uriah? Is he Jewish? Is he Hittite? Who is this kid? And all of the... Uh, criticism that could then be leveled against the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the promises of the Davidic covenant, and all of the uh, attack that could come from Satan with respect to the faithfulness of the Word of God. God says, no, that that can't happen. That's got to stop. It's going to stop right now. And he's very merciful, actually, in in, uh, bringing an end to this child's life after simply a week 
and uh, the activity there. All right. So his greatest failure was Bathsheba. And uh, the details on that. Um, and then the consequences. God's judgment upon David created hardship and heartache. And this is what happens. Sometimes the, the damage that's done in some of these sins, they follow you into your marriage. They follow you for the rest of your life. And you say, well, thank you, Father. There's a purpose for this. And um, it's not pleasant. I don't like it. But in the process of submitting to the consequences of things, we thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being merciful. And uh, trust that, uh, trust that he's, he knows what he's doing in the application of all these things. All right, well then the good news. Not only was Bathsheba his greatest failure, Bathsheba was his greatest blessing. David's greatest temporal life blessing was Bathsheba as well. And we see what happens in this marriage. What happens when you already have all those other wives and you add one more? Um, What happens in this process? Well, I think we have some clues though when we look at David's death. So 1 Kings chapter 1, and we see the grace upon David and Bathsheba that permitted the impartation of a divine wisdom to David's final batch of children. And, and I kept it as batch. I didn't change it to litter or, or you know anything else. It, you end up, it is slightly complicated when you have multiple women producing multiple children and, and they're being raised in multiple batches or households under different roofs as it were Um, but the Bathsheba offspring including Solomon and his immediate siblings his full siblings um, they were brought up under paternal and maternal doctrinal teaching they were brought up under uh, wisdom applications and so um, I want to do this backwards and I think we did this backwards also last time we were together let's start with the proverbs and then we'll go to first kings and we'll see because i think we get glimpses into their childhood we get glimpses into um things that uh, solomon was raised with and things that solomon would attempt to bestow upon his children but if it was difficult for david how impossible would it be for solomon with the thousand women that uh that he uh Well, all right, (laughs) I'll be careful. Proverbs chapter 1. And and it's pretty easy to spot as we work our way through these first nine chapters. These first nine chapters are what I've titled parental wisdom. These are the parental wisdom exhortations whereby you have all of the appeals to my son, my son, all right, or my child, if you want to make it gender neutral. Um, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. All right, now this is not only Solomon composing this in his text, and you know, you can imagine maybe he provided a hard copy to each of his children. All right, Uh, but beyond what he is instilling upon his children, hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Is, and this is, it's much easier to view this as David and Bathsheba instilling doctrine into the young boy Solomon. It's less easy to envision this as Solomon and one of a thousand women trying to bestow this upon Rehoboam, all right, and his mother, or uh, all these other children and their mother, right? Different applications there. How do you, how do, you do that? All right, um, you can imagine how how impossible is it to grow up in, in a in a household uh, with a polygamous father, and uh, you know your mother is is one of a thousand. You know how much how much time do you really get in uh, with father and mother under those under those circumstances? Verse ten, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent, and beyond simply the academic reality of it and teaching uh, teaching the Decalogue, teaching thou shalt not and all that. Beyond the academic teaching comes the um, experiential teaching, comes the exhortation. You can understand the passion and the, and the heartache that comes from a father teaching his son about harlotry when that son's older brother was killed by the hand of the Lord 
by virtue of the, the adultery that took place and what put that marriage together in the first place. You understand? Why this becomes so personal, why this becomes so direct. If sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. You know, David's preaching this to Solomon, but David's done this. David has used other people, the agency of other people, to bring about the death of the righteous. Verse 15 of the same chapter. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. That it is a path. It's not just an individual choice. It's so much bigger than just simply one sin on one day. That is a path. And what do, you, what do we know about paths? Paths go places, <laughs> right? And the path of wickedness goes somewhere. The path of righteousness goes somewhere. Which path do you want to be on? It's not just the one sin you're doing on the one day at the one time. You can confess an individual sin and be restored to fellowship. But it is the path that you're on. And where the repeated sins will take you as you stay on that path. The direction there. All right, chapter 2 and verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. It's more than just simply listening it's, it's more than simply receiving. And you can receive and say, okay, well, that's what dad thinks. All right, you heard it. All right, I hear you. But you're not treasuring it. You're not valuing it. You're not uh, taking ownership of it. It's, they're not your words. They're just dad's words at that point. No, you've got to do both. You have to receive them and treasure them. Treasure my commandments within you. Again, how much more vivid does this come? If depends. I, I, I don't view David as the author of Psalm 119, but many people do. Many people view David as the author of uh, thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Okay? In any event, that's, it's the same concept, whether or not David, I don't believe David was the author of, of uh, Psalm 119, but he is the, uh, the author of this. He is the one that urged Solomon to take the word of God and treasure it in his heart. Chapter 3 and verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. At a point, it's no longer your, your father's teaching, now it's your obedience. It's your heart obedience to the commandments. Chapter, uh, still in chapter 3, verse 11 and verse 21. Verse 11, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. Again, how much more vivid does this become when you realize that David is, is pouring, that David and Bathsheba are pouring this truth out into Solomon and what happened to Solomon's older brother? Okay? It becomes pretty, uh, pretty real at that point. Verse 21, My son, let them not vanish from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. They will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Okay? I think the Old Testament has a lot of um, explanation for what that, that new birth is all about, what the born-again experience is about, what the real life in your soul is all about. We're talking about the difference between Old Testament and New Testament salvation this morning. Over to chapter 4, verse 1, 3, 10, and 20. Now here it's, hear, O sons, plural. Hear, O sons, plural. The instruction of a father. And give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound in, uh, teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother. So you see the generations that come here. It's being passed from one generation to another generation to another generation. And... The recognition here, I think, you, you, clearly you go plural when, when you're talking about Solomon, right? How many sons did he have? Well, how many women did he have? And yet he realizes that he received this from his, from his father, from his mother. When I was a son to my father, tender, and the only son in the sight of my mother. Remember the anguish that Bathsheba had of the loss of that first son, and how David comforted Bathsheba, and how God provided Solomon in that uh, in that consequence. You recall what I'm talking about? Second Samuel 12 and verse 24. 
David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah, that is, beloved of the Lord, for the Lord's sake. I think that's a clear connection in uh, 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25, related to Proverbs 4, 3. Still in Proverbs 4, verse 10 and verse 20, Hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. You know, what's the promise? If you honor your father and mother, years of life. Okay, that's what's being said here. Honor your father and mother as they teach you the word of God. Verse uh, 20, my son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. So you should have an eagerness. We study this in readiness, eagerness. That uh, it's not just you're grudgingly listening, you have to listen, Dad's forcing you to listen. No, you're eager. Your ear is inclined. You are eager to listen. Do not depart from your sight. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life. They are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Spiritual life in the Old Testament and the needs, the need of personal salvation in the old testament chapter 5 verse 1 my son give attention to my wisdom incline your ear to my understanding you will benefit from it verse 7 now then my sons plural listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth all of this warning against the strange woman that we'll see so many times in these early chapters you know, if only Solomon would have paid attention to his own preaching, <laughs> right? Warning his boys about the strange woman. Warning his boys about uh, how seductive uh, it is. Verse uh, 20, why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Again, it's the path that you're on. It's not the individual sin. The individual sin is simply a, a symptom. It's, a, it's, a, it's an event, sure, it's a bad event, but it's a symptom of the path that you're on, and it's the repeated um, sins that then become the, the issue and the direction of where that goes. Chapter uh, 6, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 20. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor and have given a pledge for your strangers, it's not all sexual issues. It could be financial. It could also be um, your business dealings and some of the struggles that you, ent- you get into in your uh, dealings in the community. Verse 3, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. It's like the, uh, the common speech our president makes. He says, we will not rest until uh, whatever. Okay. Um, well, that's biblical, if you mean it. <clears throat> In verse 4, give no sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids. You know, do not rest until you have made this right. Go to the ant, O sluggard. We'll be seeing that there in verse 6. Down to verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. You know, your mom and dad aren't going to be around forever. I think, uh, in fact, I was talking to Dan yesterday about why, uh, how different is the ministry now that mom's in heaven? Well, (laughs) when you lose that kind of a prayer warrior, yeah, there's going to be some effects. You bet there's going to be some effects. No wonder this flock's under such attack. We didn't know how good we had it. All right. You're not going to have your parents around forever, but you do have the living and abiding Word of God. We do have the living and abiding Word of God. And so uh, bind them continually on your heart, tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. Okay? You're not always going to have mom following you around, but the Word of God is there. It is always there. Chapter 7. My son, keep these words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. 
my teaching is the apple of your eye. This is real life. This is spiritual life. This is not bios life. In verse 24, therefore, my sons, plural, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Again, this is what happens when you're led astray. It's the path that you get put on. The path that you get put on and uh, romantic entanglements will take you on that wrong path quicker than anything. And uh, we'll deal with that as we go through these early chapters. Now we can back up. And see, so here's, I think, it's, I think it's pretty clear, in my mind anyway, it's clear as you look in these early chapters in Proverbs, as you see all of these, my son, my son, my son, admonishments, and the recognition of the, of the value that David and Bathsheba had in Solomon's childhood, and Solomon's upbringing, and he wants to convey that forward to his children in, in his composition of the book of Proverbs. We can see that generational blessing there. So uh, when we look at the end of David's life and we see um, not Solomon's childhood, but Solomon now is an adult man ready to take the throne, 1 Kings chapter 1, I think we can see that uh, Bathsheba continues to have an impact. Because we don't see a whole lot of Bathsheba in between... Um, that Second Samuel 12 where David comforted her and Solomon is born and, and, uh, and here. First Kings chapter 1. King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servant said to him, Let them seek a young virgin for my lord the king. Let her attend to the king and become his nurse. And let her lie in your bosom that my lord the king may keep warm all right this is the procedure and it might seem a little awkward to us why not just get an electric blanket or (laughs) all right why is he not sleeping with his wife well how many wives does he have and how how many this is the thing what are the logistics of a polygamous household okay how many beds does the king have the king has the king's bed that's his bed and then the wives have their houses with a bed in each of those houses and um, the children that they're raising in those houses, in those households. All right, and then whichever wife or concubine or queen or princess or what have you is brought into the king's chamber on that night, that's a a matter for Microsoft Outlook and some kind of scheduling software for (laughs) any of that. All right. It's interesting, though, that uh, he does not touch her they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. And the girl was very beautiful. She became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not cohabit with her. And all the guesswork and commentary and speculation and imagination and everything else. It does this reflect his um, monogamy with Bathsheba, uh, as some try to emphasize. Does this stress, um, what does this stress? Does this simply stress that he's old and he's sick and he's, uh, he's past the point of, of uh, that kind of activity anyway? Uh, I tend to think that's more likely the case, given what else we know about his appetites, um, I think it's what the scripture says. He's old, he's sick, he's approaching his death, and that's not uh, anything that's on his mind anymore. Anyway, but what happens here is uh, there ends up becoming a struggle for the throne, and she is going to be a part of the politics of this, uh, as well as other things. And so while this is going on, Adonijah, verse 5, the son of Haggith. Remember Haggith? No? Okay. One of David's wives. We're going to look at this. We're going to show you all of his wives and different things. Uh, She's festive. Haggai is festive, and Haggith is a feminine of that. She's the party girl. She's the, (laughs) and I guess, uh, whatever you want to read into that. Uh, But she had a son named Adonijah. 
And uh, he exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. And his father had never crossed him at any time by asking, why have you done so? And so he gets away with things, and David is not stopping it. David doesn't say a word. David doesn't put an end to it. Again, we start to wonder at the end of his life, was David really aware of all these things going on? I think here it's, he was aware of it, and he didn't stop it. And so he was also a very handsome man and was born after Absalom. He had conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and following Adonijah, they helped him. So he's, he himself is, is making a, a play for the throne. And he's getting the military involved, that's Joab. He's getting the priesthood involved. That's uh, Adonijah here, the priest. Or I'm sorry, Abiathar the priest. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David, they were not with Adonijah. They were not involved in the process. They weren't invited, they weren't welcome, and they weren't taking part. Adonijah sacrificed sheep and oxen, fatlings, and, uh, and all of this. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. Now David had a lot of sons by this point. A lot of older sons, a lot of adult sons, sons that are they're much senior to Solomon, because they were they were around long before you know long before the Bathsheba episode, long before Solomon was ever born. Solomon and his siblings are uh, are the youngest. That batch is the youngest of the uh, of the children. Now, there's a lot we can consider with respect to that. Ralph thought it's because David became monogamous and he produced no more children after that. Well. Okay, the, the siblings are older than Solomon, and any of the younger siblings are Bathsheba offspring. But is that simply because David was monogamous, or was that because David's other wives were older? <laughs> you know, that it, years had gone by. How many years are you in your childbearing window, as it were? Anyway, it gets complicated. I don't, uh, I'm, just for the record, I'm opposed to polygamy. All right. Um, in case there's any question about that. Now, the sons of the king's sons, this is what's important. He invites all his brothers, the king's sons, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the mighty man, and here's one son that's left out, Solomon, his brother. Why is Solomon excluded when all the other half-siblings are included? Why is Solomon excluded? Okay, There's a reason for this. There's a reason why they do what they do. So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Now here's the key. Nathan's not going to go to David like he did when he exposed the harlotry. The priests aren't going to go to David. The mighty men aren't going to go to David. Who is it that's going to get through to David? It's going to be Bathsheba. It's going to be, this is the one person that's closest to David. Probably the closest since Jonathan died, that, that ever had anybody connected to David's soul was Bathsheba. So he spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. So he's not aware that all these political things have... He knew they were in motion, but he doesn't realize how far it's gone. So now come, please let me give you counsel and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Why is this? Uh, why, why are they in danger of death? Well, what's going to happen if he, in fact, takes this throne? It's fairly common to execute the remainder of the uh, the threats to the throne. Get rid of those half siblings. Get rid of the the sons by the other women. Get rid of those other women. You know, David took custody of of Saul's harem. And that was a grace provision for them because the, the pagan mode would have just killed them all. Just butcher the batch. All right? And any, any children that they have, they've got to go too. Well, and this is what the danger is. If, if Adonijah secures the throne, Bathsheba's doomed. Solomon's doomed. All the siblings of Solomon are doomed. There cannot be any threat to, uh, to the Haggith legitimacy. That is... Adonijah, and, uh, and so forth. So go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord, O king, sworn to your maidservant, saying, Surely Solomon your son, 
shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Now, when was this vow spoken? This is kind of interesting. That there had been a vow spoken that Solomon would be the heir, that Solomon would be the king. You go back to uh, 2 Samuel, you start looking at that, and start trying to hunt it down. We don't have it recorded in Scripture, but it was true. It was spoken between David and Bathsheba. Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. So this is the procedure that go through, but it's got to start with Bathsheba. No one is closer to David than Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet can come in after Bathsheba to confirm what she says, but he just can't go in there by himself. He can't go in there by himself and connect with David the way that Bathsheba can connect with David. His greatest temporal life blessing was Bathsheba. So she does. Bathsheba went into the king in the bedroom, verse 15. The king was very old, and Abishag, the Shunammite, was ministering to the king. Then Bathsheba bowed and prostrated herself before the king, and the king said, what do you wish? So this kind of gives us an interesting insight into how it works when You've got your uh, your bed warmers in there, and then one of your other wives comes in. Okay, like I say, it's complicated. <laughs> All right, so she comes in. My lord, you swore to your maidservant by Yahweh your Elohim, saying, "Surely your son Solomon shall be king after me. He shall sit on my throne." Now this is extraordinary because keep in mind that the sequence of events before Solomon was ever born. Before Solomon was ever born, he had other sons. He had adult sons. In fact, he had terrible things that were taking place between uh, Absalom, for example, who took the throne. Absalom, who staged a rebellion, actually, and who took the throne. And uh, the other son that raped the the, the sister, and then the, the murder that took place. I mean, he's got adult sons. He would presumably have an heir apparent. He would presumably have the heir that was designated, like Saul had designated Jonathan. And uh, the, the, this is the crown prince. This is the one who is, who is uh, slated to be my successor. And if David had sworn to Bathsheba a vow in the name of Yahweh Elohim that Solomon is the heir apparent, he certainly didn't make that public or he didn't make that known to Joab and to um, the people here that are taking uh, Abiathar the priest, these, these, uh, the mighty men, that uh, he didn't make that public so that, you understand, because he failed to make that clear, it ends up being a, a, a crisis. It ends up being a, a, a fight that shouldn't have been. There should have been no fight. It should have been very publicly known that upon my death, Solomon now is the new king. Why was that only between David and Bathsheba? Okay. Well, in any event, it wasn't, and so that was a failure on David's part. But still, even with that failure on David's part, what do we find out? That that was a, an, an element of intimacy between David and Bathsheba, okay? As opposed to Haggith or Abishag or uh, Abigail or uh, Michael or, uh, or Michal or any of the other women that, uh, uh, that David was, uh, was married to. Uh, so, she says, you swore to me, you swore to your maidservant by the Lord your God, saying, surely your son Solomon shall be king after me, he shall sit on my throne. Behold, Adonijah is king, and my lord the king, you do not know it. You don't even realize this. There's a king sitting on your throne and you're clueless. And he sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance. He's invited all the sons of the king and Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon, your servant. There is an exclusion here. The reason why he's excluded is because he knows what the, the vow that David took with Bathsheba. All right. How does he know that? Don't know. As for you now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will come about as soon as my lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be considered offenders. 
Yeah, we're pretty doomed. And so right there then, Nathan makes his entrance. They told the king, saying, here's Nathan the prophet. And boy, there's uh, <laughs> the very man that, uh, that exposed the whole adultery thing and the murder thing. And here he is again with David and Bathsheba in the same room. All right. Nathan said, my lord, the king, have you said Adonijah should be king after me? He shall sit on my throne. Do you know what's going on? He has gone down today, has sacrificed oxen and fatlings and sheep in abundance, has invited all the king's sons and all the commanders of the army and Abiathar the priest, and behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and they say, long live King Adonijah. But me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Here's the list of those excluded. And notice, everyone excluded is a believer. Everyone excluded as a, as a strong believer in, in uh, obedience to, to the Lord God. Zadok's a much better priest than Abiathar. Benaiah's a much better military leader than Joab. And uh, so forth. Has this thing been done by the Lord the King? Have you not shown to your servants who should sit on the throne of my Lord the King after him? All right. So here's the question. Did you, did you make known what the succession is going to be? We don't think this is your will. We think Solomon is your will. Why has Solomon been excluded? Why have we been excluded? It may be that these are the men that David trusted to make the thing. It's hard to say. You read into it one way or the other, however you, uh, however you understand this. So King David said, call Bathsheba to me. And he's now going to reassert the vow. And he confesses this. He says, um, she came into the king's presence and stood before the king and the king vowed and said, as the Lord lives, as the Lord lives. You know how powerful that vow is? I mean, it's blasphemy to think that the eternal God can't live or that he's going to die or, you know, as the Lord lives is, is a phrase that means forever, okay? As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, He's saved me, he's rescued me, he's forgiven me, including the way our marriage got started, right? Surely, as I vowed to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, your son Solomon shall be king after me, he shall sit on my throne in my place, I will indeed do so this day. He is going to physically do or order to be done what uh, he said he was going to do way back when. So Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground, prostrated herself before the king and said, may my Lord King David live forever. Interesting thing to say to a guy on his deathbed, but true because he will live forever. He is alive today, spiritually, of course, as a believer. And so the rest of this is going to work itself out. King David says, call me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. Let's get the priest, the prophet, and the general involved, and they're going to um, inaugurate Solomon as king. Take the servants of your Lord, have my son Solomon ride my own mule, bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, anoint him there as king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. And uh, you shall come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne he and be king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. And so this is what they do, and uh, they do it. You get down here, they take the oil in verse 39. Long live King Solomon. The people rejoice in verse 40. The earth shook, and then Adonijah and his guests go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, in verse 41. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished eating. See, they had this great celebration, this great feast. Here's the thing. They went into all this process to make it so glorious, so um involved so complicated so many people so much food so much feasting so much uproar and the simplicity of going down to the gaihan spring anointing him with the oil putting him on the throne much simpler process anyway um then they learn what uh, david had done our lord king david has made solomon king and so now we're in trouble (laughs) okay and uh, verse 49, all the guests of Adonijah were terrified. <laughs> okay? Here's a party you don't want to be at. 
You don't want uh, witnesses saying you were there that day. Oh, I wasn't there that day, right? They arose, each went on his way, scattered like cockroaches when the lights are turned on. And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon, and he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar, trying to find uh, refuge there. All right, well, anyway, David will spare Adonijah in chapter 1, at least until Adonijah schemes in chapter 2. Adonijah will uh, try to manipulate Bathsheba in chapter 2. I think more testimony to Bathsheba's influence. Um, When David slept in 210, David slept with his fathers, was buried in the city of David. Uh, So the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Solomon sat on the uh, throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was established. And uh, you see in chapter 2 and verse 19, that uh, she, he set up a throne for her. Solomon uh, had a throne set for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. So she, David, Solomon had placed Bathsheba on a, on a small throne there to his right and had given her a place of honor. It's just unfortunate that, uh, that uh, Adonijah tried to manipulate things and work through Bathsheba in order to take Abishag as his wife. Again, it's a political thing. It's a, it's a claim for the throne. It may, it may open up a, a, another rebellion against Solomon down the road, and Solomon will have no part of it. That's why uh, Adonijah will get executed here in this chapter. All right, point D. Enough about that. So we got the sense of how important Bathsheba was to David, how important Bathsheba was in the upbringing of, of Solomon. Uh, if, when you recognize that he becomes king and he puts a throne for her next to his throne as the queen mother, all right, because he's still a single guy, he's a bachelor, there's no first lady yet for Israel and, and all that. All right. If you want, there are notes available and they're on the website or even in the hallway if we have any David notebooks in the hallway. Uh, point D, review the genealogy of David from the Life of David series and the Life of David notebook. And uh, we can do that here today. And then also I'll show you what some of the things you can do with the Logos software for those that use that. I forgot to turn my mouse on. Here we go. There we go. Wake up. Boy, sometimes waking up, uh, like trying to wake up a teenager. All right, here we go. You go to the website and you have the, uh, the Life of David series that's there. From lesson one to lesson whatever. That was a fun series. I'd like to teach that again. But at the bottom of this page, you've got your david.pdf. There's your David notes. And in your David notebook, you've got all the printed notes available, including in the introduction to that series. How many classes was that totally? That was a lot. That was 137. That wasn't so bad. All right. Then you open up your PDF. Taught from 2000 to 2003. This was another series that was cassette tape only that later we turned into MP3s. Table of contents, index of tapes. Geography of David, genealogy of David. Here we go. Remember the ending of the book of Ruth? Ruth chapter 4 gives us the genealogy. Ruth chapter 4, verses 16 through 22, that shows us the ancestors of David from Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David. All right, so there's the generations. David is the son of Jesse. Jesse was the son of Obed. Who was Obed? Well, Obed was the child of Boaz and Ruth once the the book of Ruth is complete. And so you have the connection there from the book of Ruth into uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. And then the brothers of David. Remember the uh, the episode when uh, the prophet Samuel goes to Bethlehem and starts to look for the uh, the, the next king. And uh, all of the boys are brought before uh, before. Samuel, and Samuel's all impressed with how tall, dark, and handsome they are, but none of them were the right king. It was going to be the, 
the, the short guy, the little runt out there in the, in the field watching Jesse's flocks. And so the brothers Eliab, Abinadab, Shemiah, Nethanel, Radai, and Uzum. And then uh, the sisters. I believe they're half-sisters when you compare the different records there. According to 2 Samuel 17.25, these sisters were daughters of Nahash. Nahash was evidently David's mother's first husband or the second husband after the death of Jesse. No way to know, but you have half-sisters there. Zeruiah and Abigail. And uh, the offspring there, Zeruiah is the mother of Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. This is what makes Joab not only the general of the armies, but makes Joab also a nephew, makes him a nephew of David. And so there's political connections, there's also family connections. When, when uh, David says, what shall I do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? It's like, it's, that's his... Uh, frustration over uh, awkward family moments, similar to what Jesus would have with the sons of thunder, with James and John, and what shall I do with you, O sons of thunder? And he's dealing with his own, his own cousins there, given that Mrs. Zebedee was, was Mary's sister, and James and John were cousins with Jesus. So, All right, then we have his nephews, Joab, Abishai, Asahel, Amasa, Jonadab, different episodes where they came up. The wives of David, that's what we want to look at today. The wives of David. Remember, his first wife was the daughter of, uh, of King Saul. King Saul had promised David, this was an attempt to kill David, was an attempt to, uh, um, said, if you go bring me uh, 104 skins of the Philistines, then you can have my daughter uh, as your wife. And so David goes out and gets 204 skins of the, of the Philistines and uh, marries Michael, or Michal, I guess we should say. Um, who is like God, the daughter of King Saul. And then uh, she was given to another man when David was exiled. Ahinoam, the Jezreelites. Ahinoam, the Jezreelites. We don't really have the story of how he met her or how he married her. We just have her mentioned in Scripture as the mother of Amnon. And uh, so we're left wondering, well, hmm, how did that come about? And then Abigail, the Carmelites. We do have her story. She had been the wife of, uh, of Nabal, foolish Nabal, and uh, when he died, then uh, David took uh, her. David married a couple of widows at least, all right, and uh, neatest thing we can say about Abigail, Abigail seemed to be a woman of great character. Abigail seemed to, to have wisdom. She seemed to have discretion. She, uh, she certainly had more going for her than, than her foolish husband did. And uh, when you read through that story there in 1 Samuel 25, uh, but we don't really see her again after, after that chapter. We don't know what happened to her. She uh, gave birth to Chiliab. Uh, Chiliab is also known as Daniel, depending on if you're reading Kings or, or Chronicles, or Samuel or, or Chronicles. But um, maybe the best thing that can be said about Chiliab is that he never steals a throne or rapes a sister or brings his dad to grief. He never does anything that, that, uh, that upsets David or defiles the Lord or anything of that nature. Makah means oppression. May not be the smartest thing to marry a woman whose name means oppression, you know, but I guess if you marry a girl with that kind of name, what kind of marriage do you end up with? Um, wouldn't you know it, She's the daughter of a king, the daughter of King Talmai, king of Geshur. And she becomes the mother of Absalom and Tamar. And so you start to see, you start getting involved in political marriages. You're marrying a neighboring king. Why are you marrying a neighboring king, uh, the, the daughter of a neighboring king? Unless you're forming these kind of alliances, political alliances with the Geshurites. And uh, wouldn't you know it, Absalom then becomes uh, part of the trouble down the road. He's the son of a king. He's the grandson of another king. And feels like he should be king and stages the rebellion against uh, against David. There's Haggith, the festive party girl. The Hebrew Hag means festival. She's the mother of Adonijah. Abital, my father is the dew, mother of Shephatiah. We don't know anything about him or her. Eglah, meaning heifer, the one that makes me laugh all the time. Heifer, Eglah. That is not a flattering name in our culture anyway, but back then you could call your daughter Heifer and she uh, didn't seem to be insulted by it in any way. But 
Nowadays, we would not, uh, we would not like that. Mother of Ithram. What do we know about Ithram? Think about these other women and these other sons. These are the king's sons. These are the boys that were invited to Adonijah's party when he's trying to stage the coup, when he's trying to give legitimacy. And by their attending, by their support, they are submitting, they are uh, supportive, they are hoping not to be executed when he does become king, you know, saying, yes, we are acknowledging that the son of Haggith is going to be our new king aspects there. And then there's finally Bathsheba, the daughter of seven or the daughter of an oath. And uh, the daughter of Eliam, here's what we want to understand too. This is, this is key in understanding the adultery chapter and the other aspects. According to 2 Samuel 11.3, she is the daughter of Eliam, right? That makes her the daughter of one of David's mighty men. That means that she has allies, she has help, she has connections herself through her father's house in, uh, in the administration. She's also the granddaughter of Ahithophel the Gilanite, when you combine that together with 2 Samuel 23:34, So she has her father's influence as a mighty man. She has her grandfather's influence as a counselor to the king, as the wisest man in all of, in all of uh, Israel. The granddaughter of Ahithophel the Gilanite, the trusted friend and counselor of David who later betrayed him. She's the mother of Solomon, Shemiah, Shobab, and Nathan. The mother of Solomon, Shemiah, Shobab, and Nathan. Four siblings, plus the child that was never given a name, but the child that died after uh, seven days of prayer. Plus other wives and other concubines. They're not named, but there were other wives, other concubines, including the, the wives that he inherited from King Saul. And so there's the sons, Amnon, Chiliab, Absalom, Adonijah, Shephatiah, Ithream, Solomon, Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan. But then there's these other ones too. There's Ibhar, Elishama, Eliphalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia. And some of these are interesting too because we're not entirely clear what their exact matriarchal lineage might be, how they're connected to David. But they are listed in Chronicles as being sons of, uh, sons of David. Uh, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, Eliphalet. And then the one daughter we know about is, uh, is Tamar. Other sons, other daughters by other wives and other concubines. Okay, so there's that. Also, I'm running out of time. Uh, we have the Logos Bible Facts diagram. Here's a, here's a feature. If you've never done this, just uh, pull up a passage, or you don't even have to pull up a passage, but that's the easiest way to do it. We have David mentioned, such as, uh, what's one of the verses we're looking at here? Proverbs 1 1. How about that? And anytime you have a name in the Bible, all you got to do is click that name, see the person, David, and open up the Bible facts. And you can spend hours, <laughs> okay? looking at all the different connections, all the different people. Um, was I going to do David or was I going to do Solomon? Let's do Solomon. And his gets complicated because he had all those women. Anyway, you have the, uh, the picture window here. You've got your different uh, Bible dictionaries over on the left. You've got your academic resources you can turn to to bring up uh, your different encyclopedias and Bible dictionaries. You have a snapshot of who he was, different passages where he appears. And, and every single person in the Bible has been programmed to have a, a feature like this in the, in the Bible Facts uh, portion of your Logos Bible software. Son of David and Bathsheba, third king of Israel. You got the different places here where he's featured in 1 Kings. And uh, 
how he builds a house for Pharaoh's daughter. It's, it is remarkable. We'll, we'll have to address that. I'm out of time. We'll have to address, uh, address this as we get further into, I think, the Proverbs, the different marriages that Solomon had and where he went wrong, where he did not apply the wisdom that he wrote about, where he uh, did not obey the warnings that David and Bathsheba gave to him, and how it was the wisest man that ever lived ruined the rest of his life. How he died in, I believe, the sin unto death. How he died in, uh, in darkness at the end of his life. So we'll deal with that coming up as well. But that's enough for today. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. I ask for your hand of blessing upon each one of us as we depart. Father, bring us back safely in your will at our next available opportunity. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.